MSW Media. This week, the world learned horrific details of the murder of Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi at the hands of Saudi agents. Although Khashoggi was dismembered by a Saudi autopsy specialist, the Saudis initially denied that he died at their embassy. Since that time, the Saudi explanation has shifted multiple times, as Crown Prince Muhammad bin Salman continues to deny any involvement, even though three members of his personal security team were involved in the murder. After initially finding the Saudi denials to be credible, Trump now claims that he is upset by their false denial, yet is still unconvinced that the Crown Prince was involved. How should the United States react to the murder of Khashoggi? What should our relationship with the Saudis be going forward? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name is Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a CNN legal analyst. And I'm joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, a comedian and WGN radio host who will join us regularly on this podcast. So, Patty, I will tell you this news, the news this week has been confusing, I think, for a lot of people and perhaps intentionally so. Oh, I think for a couple of weeks this story has been confusing as soon as we learned that uh, this journalist, uh, Jamil Khashoggi, disappeared. And we've been talking about it on my show in Chicago, and, and a lot of people are like, well, you know, the president says, let's just wait until we hear more information. And he even rolled out, oh, here we go with another story of presumed guilty until innocent, uh, rather than innocent, just like with Kavanaugh. I mean, he, he even is trying to lump things together to show that, oh, well, the way the media portrays things kind of blows it up and makes it more dramatic or to make us look bad. But here we are. Now he has to admit that because Saudi Arabia has admitted that he did not leave, that the uh, Shogi did not leave the consulate in Turkey, was not alive, uh, that he has, uh, that he is dead, that, uh, and, the, and the story kept changing, that, uh, oh, a fight broke out and all these different things. It is, it's <clears throat> incredibly confusing, especially because a lot of people don't quite understand what our relationship is with Saudi Arabia, this deal we just got over, was it over the summer, about a, with the arms deal, you know, it's obviously. Not, it's not even finalized. It's a deal that Trump's talking about, but my mm-hmm. understanding is it hasn't been finalized. Um, it's something I guess he expects to happen. You know, Saudi Arabia, of course, that's a country in the Middle East, mm-hmm. biggest oil producer in the world, mm-hmm. the head of OPEC, the oil cartel, very important over the years, but less important to us over time as our domestic production has increased, in part due to increased drilling and, and fracking and other things. Um, and I think also increased production of natural gas and, and right. new technologies and so forth. So... You know, we have uh, we've had a relationship with the Saudis over the years, at times a close one. But this took place in Turkey, another country that's part of NATO. It's an ally of the United States. And it was in their embassy. And Mr. Khashoggi, my understanding was uh, he initially came to the embassy a week earlier saying that he needed uh, papers because he was 
He's a he's a re- permanent resident in the United States, a journalist at the Washington Post, but he's a citizen of, the, of Saudi Arabia. He came. He needed marriage papers. They said to come back a week later. Mm-hmm. He did, and then he 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 met uh, those fifteen men when he was there. Right. He was trying to make sure that the documentation was there that his divorce was finalized uh, with with a woman from Turkey, I believe. And uh, the again the parts of the story and and in that week when we learned that he was missing. It was interesting because I, I don't even I'm still trying to figure out where we were getting parts of the story, because right away there were uh, there was talk about how he had turned on his watch. So there might be audio recording of this and, and whether or not the Turkish government will ever release this for us. I, I, I'm not sure uh, whether and, and people are asking, you know, can we also you know, why isn't the FBI getting involved since he was a resident of the United States? And so I've been trying to understand this as well. You know, Turkey, because it's a consulate, Saudi Arabia is like, oh, you know, they can't go in there. They can't just, you know, demand that we you know, are subjected to um, interrogation. Well, that doesn't isn't necessarily true in considering the fact now that the Saudis have admitted that he was killed during a fight. So it is a murder investigation and Turkey has to investigate it as such. But I don't they have to ask the uh, United States for FBI help. And I don't think they're going to do that either. Do you? Well, I, 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 I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, the Turks, it's interesting. I mean, so the Turks seem to be interested in letting the in having the truth come forward here. They don't want to have anything to do with it. Oh, no doubt. <laughs> <laughs> and so they've been very forthcoming, I think, with the American press in releasing details. Uh, they were the, the reason we know about the audio recording is because of the Turks. Mm-hmm. Um, the Turkish uh, Turkish officials revealed that, I believe it was to The New York Times earlier this week. Um, But, you know, the embassy of a nation is usually sovereign territory of that nation. So, um, you know, it is it's it's going to be interesting to see how it shakes out. You know, I think one thing that's an interesting takeaway for people is, you know, you mentioned in the beginning how Trump talked about this is guilty until proven innocent. A lot of times people talk about circumstantial evidence. It's just circumstantial evidence. And that's that there's a difference between direct and in the law between direct and circumstantial evidence, direct evidence being like, let's say an eyewitness or a video recording. And, um, you know, we actually treat those the same way under the law. The jury can consider direct and circumstantial evidence identically. And here I think is a great example of how circumstantial evidence can lead you to a conclusion that you can feel very confident in and probably convict beyond a reasonable doubt. I mean, regardless, we haven't heard the audio tape, but you know that the, that uh, Mr. Khashoggi, who's a 59-year-old, a pudgy journalist, uh, with, you know, wears glasses, does not look like a very tough man, goes into the Saudi Arabian embassy to get papers. Um, there's He's met there by 15 members of uh, who are I think members of like their secret service essentially or the special operations right. of the Saudi government, three of them from the Crown Prince's team. One, then they're joined by an autopsy specialist. Why you'd bring that person to a fist fight or to a conversation about papers? Who knows? Right? It's pretty 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 damning right there. And then his body disappears. And these men, you know, go, they fly in the day before they leave. And then the Saudi Arabian government doesn't say, oh well. There's a fist fight or here's his body. They can't they don't know where his body is. Right. Uh, they claim now uh, after the shifting explanations, the you know, the, uh, the the explanation went from he's not in the he didn't leave the embassy or excuse me. He left the embassy. He was fine. Exactly. To he was a fist fight uh, that this, like this guy picked a fight with 15 younger trained men. And then now it's that he died in a chokehold. Um, but if he died in a chokehold, why not leave his body, give it to his family or whatever? Correct. 
Mm-hmm. Why why chop his fingers off and head off? And with an autopsy specialist, you flew in from Saudi Arabia the day before for mm-hmm. the purpose. You know, you know, regardless of that that watch, it's very hard for me to understand how any intelligent person looking at this in a credible way could possibly think that this was a mistake. Well, and the fact that the president continued to take their story, right? He said, oh, well, they've told me, they've assured me they had nothing to do with it. Uh, and then and now and and even in the middle of all this, right, because we talk about how the, the president's language can often give cover, not just here, but internationally. It, it means something when he talks about the press and how they are an enemy of the people. And even on Wednesday at a rally talking about this legislator from Montana who body slammed a reporter and, you know, got the audience cheering something like that. When you dehumanize an entire profession and say that journalists and the media mm-hmm. are an enemy, you know, what, why would uh, why wouldn't the uh, Saudi prince believe that he has the cover and the not necessarily the approval, but certainly, you know what I mean? You know how these journalists get you got to take care of them sort of an idea. It's an interesting perspective. I will tell you, I am very I've I've long been very disturbed about the way in which Trump attacks the free press because journalists really are one group of people that can hold him accountable and are our servants and our last line of defense against a tyrannical government. So I think, you know, the the, the our constitution was premised on the idea that there was going to be a free press and many of our founding fathers believe that to be a core principle of our country. But I will say you know, what I one thing I find interesting here is the parallel to the denials that Trump has made of the Russian involvement in attacking our elections. So there, you know, Trump has said, oh, I believe Putin. Putin denied it. So I believe it. But it's interesting there. So in that case, we have the conclusions of of our intelligence agencies like the FBI, the CIA, the NSA and so forth. We also have a federal indictment that a grand jury returned that Bob Mueller uh, obtained that that sets forth, I'd say, the case that Russia was attacking and undermining our elections. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the details of it are obscured because it's classified here. It's there's there's no such thing. And people get to see the absurdity of the entire, you know, uh, weight of the evidence themselves. And they get to make their own independent judgment. Is Trump. Um, you know, what Trump's denial, you know, or, or acceptance of the Saudi denial, is that credible? And it's interesting to me that lawmakers on both sides have determined it's not. And it just shows you that truth does matter. And those attacks in the press, which really are an attempt to try to make it so truth doesn't matter so that he can say whatever and not be held accountable, that that has not worked at least yet. Well, and, and it also, you know, when people talk about there are so many listeners and callers to WGN where they'll talk about the Second Amendment. Anytime we talk about gun legislation, they get their panties in a bunch. But when it comes to the First Amendment, I mean, how is that not something that you value? And and that's what it comes down to in these conversations about uh, our interests, right? Our values versus our interests when it comes to Saudi Arabia. At what point are we going to say having this deal go through the arms? Is it a hundred million dollars with the Saudi prince? I think it was yeah, one hundred ten something. Right. Isn't it? Is it? Yeah, I mean it's a lot of money. When right. do we stand behind our values over our personal interest, our interest as a country financially? Well, it's an interesting thing. Uh, I would say as well when you look at American history, because at times the United States has been allied with less than savory mm-hmm. nations, right? So you know we fought alongside the Soviet Union. Uh, to defeat Nazi Germany. And there have been many times where we have uh, uh, propped up dictators. Uh, The Saudi government, for example, for many years has violated human rights, has 
treated women uh, in a highly unequal way. I mean, women can't drive, can't hold many jobs over there, don't have all the rights that we would expect citizens to have uh, of a nation. Yet uh, we've supported that country in the past and at times gone out of our way and put American lives on the line to um, to defend its sovereignty. So because of our interests, because of our interests. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, what what an interesting question I think is for all of us is at what point do we draw the line and what principles do matter? I think one thing that's important here is, you know, and this is another question that I think ties into what we discussed last week is, you know, is uh, Mr. Khashoggi one of us? Is he an American citizen? You saw Donald Trump saying like he's not a he's not a citizen. He's not a citizen as if that really was the controlling factor. You know, here's a man who writes for The Washington Post, uh, who's very well known and an important part of the American landscape, who's here legally on a a visa that's given to people who are authors and journalists and actors Mm -hmm. and so forth. Uh, And it's you know, he's treated by at least the administration or the Trump administration as somebody who we don't need to be that concerned with. Right. And when you ask, is he one of us? I, I guess I, I have uh, loftier goals is that he was a human being who has uh, was killed in a, an incredibly torturous way, it seems. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, you know, that uh, the reason I raise it is that that's his his shield is that he wasn't one of us that, as an American. That's right. And also, I would say, too, you know, it raises the interesting question, which we can talk about with our guests in a minute, is it, what, what is the dividing line for the United States? Is the United States, whenever anyone is murdered, are we going to stop arms sales or, you know, right. the whole world going to take attention whenever ever any human being is, is hurt around the world? What makes him important? Why are we horrified by this? I think one thing I will say that is particularly horrific about this is the way in which that, you know, he was... You know, this is an innocent man who was lured into a situation where he was surprised and murdered for his speech, for what he was saying. And, you know, there's always something particularly gruesome about, you know, he's a man when you're in an embassy of your own country. You know, he was a citizen of Saudi Arabia. He's he's supposed to feel and be kept safe that his government has a duty to for, you know, for safety. In fact, the reason embassies exist in foreign countries is to make sure they're safe. And they essentially took that expectation of safety and and they 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 uh, turned it on its head and they fooled him and and uh, betrayed him because of his speech, because he was critical of their government. Well, I guess that goes back to, as you mentioned, uh, you, as you were asking, you know, is it every time one person dies, do we, you know, th- just sort of uh, annihilate a deal, an arms deal like this $110 million. But again, it goes to the overall, as you mentioned, he was critical of Saudi Arabia. So are we going to say that anytime you want to control journalists, anytime you want to control critical voices, executing them in this fashion is acceptable and we will continue to do business with you? Well, these are all very important questions. And so let's bring in Max Boot to discuss them with us. Max is a best-selling author, He is himself a Washington Post columnist. He's also a fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, and he has been discussing these topics on CNN as a a foreign policy contributor and elsewhere. Welcome to the show, Max. Thank you for being here with us. Thanks for having me. Well, I know you've been talking a lot about your new book, uh, which has been a bestseller. What, What is the title of that book? It's called The Corrosion of Conservatism, Why I Left the Right. And it's a book that we should have you back on here to talk about, uh, a very important topic on its own right. 
Uh, but we're here. To... I don't think he's alone. I've, I've got several friends, but uh, I think it goes both ways sometimes. But there you continue. go. There you go. Uh, but I um, uh, but I do want to talk uh, to you about today about the death of Mr. Khashoggi. Um, you know, this is um, something that I think a lot of people have been struggling to understand why why how it is um, that the the Saudis have been able thus far to get the support of the Trump administration, or at least until recently, Trump is starting to express some concerns or doubts about this. Can you explain to us what the relationship between the United States and Saudi Arabia is and how that has changed uh, under the Trump administration? Well, the U.S. and Saudi Arabia have a long-standing relationship, which has essentially been premised on the notion that the Saudis provide oil and we provide security. Now, that's changed in recent years because we don't really need Saudi oil, although we import some. We are essentially self-sufficient when it comes to energy. I mean, we still think it's incredibly important to, to safeguard Saudi Arabia, which is still one of the largest oil producers in the world. But the United States has also in the past uh, acted as a restraining influence on Saudi Arabia, and that restraint has completely come off in the case of the Trump administration, which has given a blank check to Mohammed bin Salman, crown prince known as MBS, who is the de facto ruler of Saudi Arabia and who is a young man in a hurry. He has done a few good things, like allowing women to drive, but he has also been a very impetuous, reckless, and headstrong ruler who has undertaken a very costly and unsuccessful war in Yemen. He has blockaded Qatar. He has kidnapped and then released the Prime Minister of Lebanon. He has gotten into a major feud with Canada after Canada criticized some of his human rights abuses. And now, of course, he has murdered and dismembered uh, Jamal uh, Khashoggi, who is a uh, Saudi citizen resident in the United States and a writer for, for the Washington Post, where I also write. I mean, you have to ask why the Saudis would, would feel that they can get away with something like this, you know, uh, killing Jamal in the Saudi consulate in a NATO country, just a very brazen act of international terrorism. And I have to assume that they thought they could get away with it because uh, President Trump and Jared Kushner have backed up Saudi Arabia in every which way you can possibly imagine. And we don't know the full extent of the Trump-Saudi Arabia relationship. We know that Trump has bragged in the past about all the money he's made from Saudi Arabia. And, you know, we, we just don't have any visibility on that because he does not release his taxes or, or business records. But it's clear that that Trump and, and Kushner have formed a very close relationship uh, with, with Saudi Arabia and in particular with MBS. And that's, you know, what is essentially, I think, given him a license to kill. I mean, people wonder, uh, you know, as far as our financial interests there, how do you feel about our interest being more important, as it seems, with this administration than our values. It seemed that our interests seem to outweigh our values as not just Americans, but as human beings. Yeah. I mean, you have to balance interest and values in any foreign policy. You're not going to be successful if you're all values or all interests. Uh, there's got to be a balance between the two. And the Trump administration does not balance that at all because values play essentially no role in their foreign policy. I mean, a week ago on 60 Minutes, Trump was asked whether he was bothered by the poisonings and assassinations carried out by Vladimir Putin. And he said, well, it doesn't happen in our country. So the implication being, who cares? And that's, you know, very much his attitude towards Saudi Arabia. He doesn't seem very exercised about the fact that this 
uh, journalist writing for an American newspaper was was murdered and dismembered. He seems to be more worried about the kind of arms deals that we have with Saudi Arabia, which he vastly exaggerates. We don't. There's not actually 110 billion dollars worth of arms that we're selling to them. We're not. There's not a million jobs dependent on arms sales to Saudi Arabia. In fact, the entire U.S. defense industry only employs about 330,000 people. But you know that shows you where his head is at. It's all about the bottom line. It's all about profit and loss. He's thinking very much like a businessman rather than as the, as the president of the United States. You know, one one thing I think that he is using one one I think tack he's taking is is that Khashoggi was not a citizen of the United States, and so it doesn't matter. He Trump has repeated that multiple times. To, to what extent do, should we be concerned with people who are, you know, how? to what extent should the United States be concerned with permanent residents, people who are part of the land, the important part of the landscape here in the United States, like a journalist in the, in the case of Khashoggi? Well, well, of course, even if he had no connection at all to the United States, we should still be concerned if the Saudis are murdering and dismembering journalists. I mean, it ultimately doesn't matter what their nationality is. Free speech and freedom of the press are two of the bedrock values the United States has stood for ever since the foundation of our republic, and those are values that we should continue to champion in this world. But in the case of Jamal, I mean, he was also an American resident and a writer for an American newspaper, and as an American resident, Renato, you know, as you know, mm-hmm. he is entitled to the full protection of U.S. law. He is a U.S. person under the law, even though he is not a U.S. citizen. So this cavalier attitude that, that Donald Trump displays by suggesting you know, he's not a U.S. citizen, so essentially, who cares? That's at odds, not only with morality, but with the law itself. So what about, you know, one, one issue, I, 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 first of all, I agree with you on that, I just so we're crystal clear, I, but, I, but I'm trying to, what I'm trying to tease out, and the reason I'm asking these questions is to try to get people thinking about, you know, how we, how we handle things beyond this context. And one thing that, I, that anyone who's been a student of American history knows is that at times the United States is been in we've we've been on the same side with very uh, problematic or murderous tyrannical regimes at the times we fought alongside the Soviet Union uh, to conquer Nazi Germany for example uh, or and at other times we've actually propped up uh, tyrannical regimes uh, and problematic regimes like the Saudi government which we of course have protected with American lives uh, in the 90s for example what what I wonder is um, it what you know we've talked you talked a little bit about a balance earlier. When does it make sense for the United States to hold its nose and support a, t- a tyrant, tyrannical regime in order to, for example, prevent a war or, or prevent a tragedy from occurring? Um, and, and, when, and when are we, are we able to d- uphold our values and, and, um, and do the right thing? Well, Franklin Delano Roosevelt is credited uh, with that famous line, He's an SOB, but he's our SOB, probably apocryphal, but supposedly said by by Roosevelt about Samosa, the dictator of of Nicaragua. And it's certainly the case that we have made common cause with many SOBs over the years, especially uh, during the Cold War when we felt we had to align ourselves with anti-communist dictators to battle against Soviet communism. I think we've been a little bit freer to make fewer compromises in the post-Cold War world, but we certainly made a compromise in the case of Saudi Arabia. And, you know, I think there's no realistic alternative at this point to the Saudi royal family. There's not another 
government in exile, which would be acceptable to the United States. But one thing that I want to stress here is MBS, the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, is not synonymous with the uh, Saudi government. He only became the Crown Prince last year. Saudi Arabia existed for more than 80 years without MBS in charge. So the issue here is really, is there going to be accountability for Jamal's murderers? And if, as appears likely, MBS, the crown prince, ordered this operation. Is there going to be accountability for him? That's a separate issue from the issue of should we have the U.S.-Saudi alliance. I would say, yes, we should maintain the U.S.-Saudi alliance because, all things considered, it is in our interest to do so. We need a check against Iran. We need a relatively pro-Western regime in control of all of this oil. So, yes, continue the, the Saudi alliance, but don't give the Saudis a blank check and hold everybody in Saudi Arabia responsible for Jamal's murder, including MBS, to account. And if that means that uh, MBS is forced from power, well, that's fine. I I don't think he has shown that he is uh, responsible enough and and has the wisdom, judgment, and maturity to rule Saudi Arabia for the next 50 years, which is what he is on the course to do right now. But can that come, can uh, making, making, or I guess encouraging Saudi Arabia to remove MBS from from being the the prince, from being the ruling prince, do you think that the the Trump administration has that kind of backbone to use sanctions, to uh, use any sort of will against them to uh, make that move? The well, Trump administration has not shown that it has any willingness to stand up to Saudi Arabia and MBS. I'm just saying what I think should happen, and I, and yeah. I think that there is the possibility that the Congress will act if the administration does not. And remember that last year there was so much outrage in Congress about uh, the Saudi war in Yemen that the Senate came very close to stopping a major arms package for Saudi Arabia. And I bet if you had that vote today, there would be an overwhelming vote against it. That would put massive pressure on Saudi Arabia. I mean, Donald Trump himself said about a month ago that if it weren't for the U.S., uh, the Saudis would be out of power within two weeks. I mean, that's an exaggeration, but there is some truth to it. That It is a regime very dependent on the U.S. If we simply cut off spare parts for their air force, their air force would be grounded within a few weeks. They couldn't conduct their operations in Yemen at all. So there is a massive amount of leverage that we have. And, you know, we don't necessarily, you know, have the ability to just go in there and, and say get rid of MBS. But we can certainly make clear uh, to the Saudi royal family the cost of keeping MBS in power I mean, there are some difficulties, practicalities about how do you get this guy out of power, because practically the only person who can do it is his father, King Salman, who's something like 82 years old, and according to accounts I've read, is is not there most of the time, uh, doesn't necessarily know what's going on, and is is surrounded by MBS's henchmen. So, you know, how do you actually force him out of power when MBS has consolidated power in his own person in a way that, no previous Saudi ruler has done for many decades because he controls the security services and the army and the intelligence services, the rest of the government. So getting him out of power would be very costly. It would be very difficult. But there are thousands of Saudi princes, and most of them hate MBS because he's knifed a lot of them in the back, and a lot of them would be very happy to knife him in the back in turn. And there's no question that his position right now, I think, is is pretty precarious because he is in, confer- in a confrontation with the rest of the world. And I'm sure most of the royal family is looking on aghast and in horror, saying, you know, why has MBS gotten us into this mess? Makes It makes sense. And, and let, just to be clear, you would agree. I, I, to me, it looks like there's no question that MBS was involved or sanctioned the uh, killing of Mr. Khashoggi. Would you agree with that? 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, there's we've seen U.S. intelligence leaks suggesting that he ordered the kidnap operation. Now, there's a little bit of a question mark. Did he order the kidnap or the killing? But, I mean, I suspect they would not have killed him if, without his permission because these are some of his closest aides. And, you know, whatever happened, he is legally and morally responsible for the outcome of this operation that he ordered. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, I also... Yeah, I would I would also have trouble believing that these very well-trained operatives would not be able to keep alive, um, uh, you know, an out of shape uh, 59 year old journalist if they really wanted to do it. Right. And they're really, truly insulting our intelligence by suggesting that this 59 year old journalist decided to pick a fight with a squad of 15 Saudi goons. I mean, you know, that's the kind of thing that The Rock might do, but it's not a credible <laughs> course of action for this, you know, pudgy middle aged journalist. But the president has said it sounds like a legit story to him. And, and it sounds as though the Saudi prince was emboldened, as you mentioned, by the fact that President Trump and Jared have backed them up on everything else that they've done because of our interests. It's Well, surreal. I think that's exactly right. I mean, Trump seems to be changing his story all the time, just like the Saudis. I mean, the Saudis have come up with multiple cover stories, first claiming they didn't know what happened to Jamal, then saying he was killed in a fight, and now... There's some suggestion that maybe they're retracting that story. It's not clear. But And Trump himself said that he found it very credible. And then on Saturday night, he said to the Washington Post that there were a lot of lies. So, you know, who knows? I think both sides are feeling under tremendous pressure. And I think what they're finding is that this is not being this is not as easy to sweep this under the carpet as they might have imagined. So let's say that you and I were in charge of American foreign policy. Uh, what what course would you suggest to um, to punish the Saudi Arabian regime and MBS in particular for this action and to hold them accountable? Well, I think we would need to hold U.S. arms sales hostage to a full independent inquiry because we're not going to get the truth from an internal Saudi inquiry. We're not even going to get the truth from the Turks. You need an external inquiry, perhaps led by the United Nations, certainly with, with U.S. involvement. They need to facilitate that. And we need a commitment to bring the culprits to justice, no matter how high-ranking they are. And that includes MBS. And we should you know, make clear that if we don't get that commitment, all of a sudden they're not going to be seeing those arms deliveries like they expected. I think that's a massive amount of leverage. We, can also, we also have leverage under the Global Magnitsky Act, uh, which uh, sanctions human rights violators. And so if if the determination is made that MBS was behind this operation, we could move to freeze his assets in the West, which I'm sure are very considerable, and that would place him in a very weakened position. So, you know, I think that we need to have a credible American envoy go and talk to them and spell out the consequences, and not just the MBS. We need an American envoy who will talk to King Salman to bypass MBS to make clear to the only person who can easily depose MBS, what is at stake here, and how he is risking his whole country's future in the U.S. alliance if he continues to simply give his son uh, carte blanche to do whatever he wants. So you mentioned the Magnitsky Act. Of course, that was created because of human rights abuses by the Russian government. And, you know, when we were speaking earlier about whether or not it even mattered that Mr. Khashoggi was a U.S. person, uh, you know, it really brings to mind to me the murder of many journalists within Russia uh, in circumstances that are very suspicious and appear to be caused by the Russian government. Now, obviously, our ability to hold Russia accountable and to punish Russia is 
less than our ability to, to punish the Saudi Arabia. We have less leverage over them. But does the um, murder of Mr. Khashoggi and the reaction there suggest that perhaps we should be more aggressive at protecting journalists who aren't American or journalists in other parts of the world? Yes, absolutely. Completely agree with that. Uh, this is, you know, part of what we should be doing to protect dissidents in general, people who are fighting for freedom, the same cause that our founding fathers fought for. You know, this is some of America's proudest moments came when we stood up for for dissidents. You know, for example, Natan Sharansky, the, the Soviet uh, dissident who was in prison during the Reagan administration, reports how the prisoners in the gulag cheered when they heard Ronald Reagan uh, describing the Soviet Union as an evil empire and calling for better human rights. I mean, that's those are actions that not only uh, promote our ideals, but also promote our, our strategic interests in, in promoting freedom and democracy around the world. And that's something that Donald Trump absolutely does not do. I mean, far from championing the cause of dissidents or freedom fighters or journalists, he refers to the press as the enemy of the people, which is a chilling description, redolent of, of, of dictatorships. That's how they refer uh, to journalists. So instead of demeaning and demonizing journalists, we should be standing up for those for those freedoms and and championing them abroad. I think that is that is something we absolutely need to do more of. You know, I will tell you, I am Max. I am very troubled by Trump's attacks on the free press and seeing just the visceral reaction that some of his reporters have to seeing members of the press. I mean, you'll see them insult and scream and in and demean members of the press. And of course, we've had members of the press threatened and some attacked uh, in the United States. Uh, And it's certainly uh, Trump's rhetoric is not uh, helping and it looks like it's inciting uh, violence against journalists. Do you think that the murder of Mr. Khashoggi um, bears any relationship to Trump's words? Do you think that they had any impact at all? Well, I think the way that Trump demonizes the, the, the media as, quote, the enemy of the people, I'm sure that that's something that would have encouraged MBS to think that he could attack Jamal Khashoggi with impunity. I mean, because not only is this guy not an American citizen, he's a journalist, and clearly Donald Trump doesn't like journalists. And by the way, Jamal Khashoggi was actually critical not just of MBS, but of Donald Trump. So I'm sure that in his mind, MBS probably would have thought, well, you know, Trump wouldn't care whatever happens to Jamal. Uh, but it, and I think in some sense he's probably right. I, President Trump has not given much indication that he does care what happened, but lots of people in this country do care, especially in Washington, where Jamal Khashoggi was a fairly prominent figure. And so, you know, I think they've been surprised to see the level of, of outrage in the United States. In fact, it's been reported that MBS actually said to Jared Kushner, you know, he's shocked that people are are criticizing him because he was used to being faded in the United States as he was when he visited here last year. This is, you know, a shocking turnaround. But what it shows is that uh, while Donald Trump does not respect freedom of the press and a lot of his supporters don't, there are still a lot of people in this country who are still very dedicated to the First Amendment and and to the freedoms that we have long stood for. And so, you know, these are these are not freedoms that can be easily transgressed by even by a president of the United States. Well, it gives me some hope, Max, because you know we've had earlier the the denials uh, by by Trump of Russian uh, efforts to undermine our country, uh, and um, his acceptance of Putin's um, denials of of Russian involvement. And here we've seen him try to do the same thing 
and there has been a sense to which the truth has mattered. And people um, throughout this country, journalists, lawmakers on both sides of the aisle, uh, in, a, in a rare moment have come together in expressing skepticism and disapproval of Trump's approach, which is, uh, I think, a, a, a moment of hope for all of us. I agree, and I'm especially proud of the Washington Post, the, the newspaper where I'm a columnist, because the Post has been so forceful in making sure that nobody forgets about what happened to Jamal Khashoggi. And, you know, the Post doesn't just care about Jamal because he wrote for us. The Post has also been a consistent advocate of dissidents and, and, and human rights activists and journalists all over the world who have no connection to America or the Washington Post but are oppressed. And the Post has long championed those individuals. And so, you know, I'm very proud to be associated with a with a newspaper that uh, is, is so high-minded and is so dedicated uh, to these basic freedoms. And I think that's that's really the best of what America is all about. And, you know, it's, it's shameful that Donald Trump not only demonizes the press in general, but attacks the Washington Post individually, the New York Times individually, uh, and on and on and on. This is not what a president of the United States ought to be doing. Well, I will tell you, Max, I've been very proud to have you on our show. Me too. Uh, and I'm excited to read uh, The Corrosion of Conservatism, Why I Left the Right, a topic that I'm interested in and we've learned probably a little bit about uh, from talking to you about a different subject today. Thank you so much for joining us. Yes, thank Great. You. Thanks for having me on. Excellent job. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. Until next time, let's stay on topic. 